about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you, and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Latter Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we are picking up this evening with step number 15 on purity and uh, unchastity and chastity. And uh, we are on paragraph 63, page 149. And we've gone quite a ways through this step so far. It's one of the longer ones within the text, and uh, we are going to be able to read this evening, I hope, at least his description of the nature of temptation and how it develops uh, within the human heart and the way that we are drawn into it to the point where it becomes a passion itself. And so some wonderful uh, instruction and guidance ahead. but every paragraph is very much like that. So we're very fortunate. So paragraph 63 again. When we are in the world for some necessity, we are protected by the hand of God, perhaps through the prayer of our spiritual father, that the Lord may not be blasphemed through us. And so a monk entering into the world, uh, perhaps out of necessity, Uh, would be, he's saying here, protected by the grace of God, and especially through uh, the prayers of one's spiritual father, that humility would acknowledge that it's often through the prayers of others, especially uh, one who's responsible for our spiritual well-being, that we are often protected from evil and also protected from ourselves and our own weaknesses, And, uh, and so from blaspheming God as well. And sometimes, he says, we are protected through our own insensitivity and through having had long experiences of the sights of the world and its subjects of conversation and all its doings. And sometimes it is because the demons go away of their own accord and leave us only the demon of conceit, which takes the place of all the rest. And so... John tells us that a person can develop a kind of insensitivity, a kind of hardness uh, to the things of this world, simply because they are so frequently exposed to it, that they seem to be, uh, in their own minds, unmoved uh, by the things that they are confronted with, either what they hear or what they see, uh, not because of purity of heart, uh, but perhaps, but rather because they've been exposed to it so often Uh, that they do not acknowledge the sinfulness of it or perhaps the danger of it and what it might fill the mind, the memory, and the imagination with. Uh, And so uh, this is something uh, we've talked about before, that we can develop this kind of insensitivity and uh, precisely for the reasons that John says, that we become used to the fact that so many things on television, even the commercials these days, Uh, or on social media, or in the movies, have come to be accepted by uh, by Christians as the norm, and uh, that values change over the course of time. And instead of holding fast uh, to the wisdom, certainly of the fathers, but of the gospel itself, we've often allowed ourselves to be carried along uh, by the, the the so the waves of, and the shifting of, of the culture itself. And so this is equally a danger to us as it is to a monk who's being drawn into the world. Uh, sometimes he says also 
that uh, the demons will leave us alone and uh, and give us a respite from the battle uh, because they understand that in doing so, that they can draw us into something greater, that can undermine us in a greater way in the spiritual life, conceit, thinking that we are impervious to the attacks of the evil one or to the things that we are exposed to in the world. And in this conceit, uh, we are then set up for a greater fall in, in our life. Remember again, the proverb, pride rideth before the fall. And so the demons uh, will be patient in their own way if they can draw us into a greater sin. And so leave off attacking us on the level of sensuality if they can draw us into something such as pride. Paragraph 64, hear yet another trick and villainy of the deceiver, all you who desire to practice and guard purity. One who had experience of this craftiness told me that the demon of sensuality very often hid himself completely. And while a monk was sitting or conversing with women, he would suggest to him extreme piety and perhaps even a fountain of tears and would put into his mind the thought of instructing them on the remembrance of death, judgment, and chastity. Then the poor women, being deceived by his speech and false piety, would run to this wolf as to a shepherd. And when at last acquaintance ripened into familiarity, the unfortunate monk would suffer a fall. And certainly those around him would suffer uh, being his victim. Uh, so there is a kind of faux piety or a sham piety that the demons can draw an individual into. Uh, again, in a kind of unguarded state, uh, put the thought into the mind, uh, one's mind to be uh, a teacher and, uh, and, you know, for the monk in particular, a teacher of women, but to speak uh, eloquently about all these things that have to do with the, the spiritual life and even such things as the remembrance of death and, and uh, tears, uh, compunction. Uh, and to uh, place oneself as uh, clearly as a kind of shepherd and guide to others uh, and to, to do this unwittingly, uh, not being conscious of one's pridefulness and one's vulnerability and weakness. And so set others up as well as themselves for a great fall. Uh, that they become wolf, wolves in sheep's clothing. And, um, and so this is no small thing. Uh, they, uh, John speaks here of a kind of familiarity. And uh, I think, you know, for uh, monks, but also for priests living in the world, uh, that there is a kind of watchfulness of heart and manner of speaking and interaction that should always form and shape uh, the way that we engage others. And even speaking, I think, to you know, a larger crowd of individuals where uh, there might seem to be no danger whatsoever, it's still one can be overcome by the, the same movement uh, within the heart, uh, driven by this conceit or this desire to be, be seen, revered, and one might even say loved by others, and to have that be driven by that, that yearning uh, to, to be held in high regard uh, by others, and seeking a kind of a reward of personal affection. And not that there's anything wrong with respect or esteem or affection, but uh, the evil one is capable of using even that which is good to, to draw others into sin or to make individuals vulnerable. And uh, we've, you often hear the, the phrase familiarity breeds contempt, uh, but familiarity also can uh, breed a kind of vulnerability on multiple levels that we can, uh, because we know somebody well, we can be unguarded in our speech around them, lacking in charity, 
and uh, having no regard for their sensitivities or their needs. We can be gruff and rough with them. So on a multitude of levels, this kind of familiarity that John is speaking of, of here can uh, lead us into sin. And so we, we, we on the level of sensibility, uh, uh, the, on the level of emotional connection with others, we have to be attentive to what's going on in our heart. Are we uh, being overly familiar, not guarding our hearts in the sense of the power of our emotions and the power of our affections, or are we uh, not being aware of how we have a responsibility uh, to engage people on an emotional level and in, in the sense of being tenderhearted, kind, and gentle towards them. I came across a little quote from Father Faber. He was the founder of the London Oratory. And he, he talks about uh, kindness as being, you know, one of the, the great virtues and far more powerful than eloquence or this ability to articulate the faith with great clarity. And he said, even if we have this uh, capacity to articulate the faith with great clarity, and we are eloquent speakers, without kindness, it's not going to bear any fruit at all, and at least not what we imagine. And uh, so there has to be this kind of re respect for the, for the other on the level of, of sensibility and both guarding and protecting the, the heart for uh, a multitude of reasons. And, you know, I wouldn't want people to become uh, you know, anxious about this, uh, but I think what the fathers are good at, at teaching and what we often fail to teach is the, the, the beauty and the power of these aspects of who we are as human beings you know, our capacity to love and give ourselves in love, uh, you know, the, the ways that we interact with each other or are attracted to each other, both in terms of sensibility and sensuality, that these are very strong things for us as human beings, and they allow uh, for the great gift of, of self to the other. Uh, but they can also be used and let, uh, we can be led to use them uh, in a self-seeking fashion. And so, you know, part of our responsibility in teaching about the faith is not to have a negative anthropology, a negative view of the human person, but really to acknowledge uh, and to put forward this, uh, the opposite of, this high vision of what it is to to be a human being, what we have been created uh, uh, to be in the eyes of God, uh, how we've been created in his image and likeness, the gifts that have been given to us, and how those particular gifts are to be used in accord with his his will and uh, and certainly with love. And so often it's our sin that diminishes those things that are most good and beautiful about of about how God has created us. Any comments on these first couple of paragraphs? Okay. 65. Let us by every means in our power avoid either seeing or hearing of that fruit which we have vowed not to taste. For it is absurd to think ourselves stronger than the prophet David, that is, that is impossible. So, you know, we don't want, you know, we know that David, beloved by God and blessed by God in, in so many different ways, was tempted uh, by sensuality uh, to seize for himself what, what was another's, uh, the, the wife of another. And even to possess this for himself was capable of committing murder of having uh, Uriah be put at the front of the battle and to have his soldiers pull back in order that uh, Uriah might be struck down. And uh, David experiences the consequence of this. He's repentant over it. 
but certainly uh, what John is suggesting here is that, you know, we cannot see ourselves as greater than uh, David or the prophets or the saints that have gone before us who, who struggled with this in their life as well. Uh, that if anything, we, we should see ourselves as uh, weaker and so be uh, guarded in, in all of our actions. Purity is worthy of such great and high praise that certain of the fathers ventured to call it freedom from passion. This is a, a good uh, line to underline, I think, uh, because it's such a strong view of it uh, that we often think of purity of heart or chastity as simply uh, of, of avoiding the sin uh, or avoiding sexual sins, when purity of heart or chastity is really our capacity to love in a, a rightly ordered fashion. That to have a chaste heart, to have a pure heart is the ability to discern, if you remember, if we as we talked about earlier, that one of the fruits of purity of heart is discernment, to see clearly the, the goodness of what God has given us, the goodness of the other, so that we are not tempted uh, to simply use things or others in a way that it simply satisfies our own uh, hungers and, and desires, our own appetites, uh, that we are not tempted to objectify uh, others uh, for whatever reason in our life. And so John can say here that uh, the fathers venture to call it freedom from every passion, that if we are pure of heart, our, you know, our love is going to be rightly ordered towards the things that God, as in the way that God has intended. And so if this is true for us, John is saying, then we are going to be free from all the other passions, which uh, in some form or another uh, distort our vision and uh, make us love ourselves or the things of this world uh, in, in a sinful way. And I think, again, this is perhaps one of the ways that we have fallen short of speaking about chastity and purity, uh, and often perhaps we present it in a more of a puritanical form or fashion or moralistic or legalistic fashion, rather than seeing it in light of our capacity to love, uh, to give ourselves in love and also to receive love in the way that God has intended. And, uh, you know, I I've so often think that, you know, that very few perhaps have tasted the sweetness of that, of, of chastity or purity of heart uh, in a sense that they begin to long for it. Or as we hear at the, the beginning of the, the, the uh, previous paragraph, that we would use every means in our, our power to preserve it and to protect it. Uh, St. Philip Neri, who I often bring up and pretty much bring up every single group, so I'm sorry about that, but he's, he's such a powerful example, but he had this kind of purity of heart, this sensibility from an early age, and so even as a child, he had these sensibilities of guarding and protecting the heart, and it carried him through, you know, his, his young adult years and all the way uh, into his old age that there was a depth of prayer there, of fasting, of the other disciplines, and, but also this guarding of the heart and his interaction with others, whether it was members of his own community and how he taught them how to interact with each other or how he counseled the, the women in his life or those who came to confession with him. And I think in our day and age, when we would hear a story of that, of his uh, hearing a, a woman's confession for 30 years and never looking her in the eyes, we might think to ourselves, ah, that seems a little bit strident or, 
maybe it does seem puritanical to us, uh, but I think Philip had this very strong sense of his own vulnerability. And, uh, you know, whenever he would see somebody else fall in this sin, there but the grace of God go I. And before receiving communion or after receiving communion, saying, God, protect me for this day, for otherwise I will betray you. That he knew his capacity in an unguarded moment outside of the grace of God, that he was capable of, of anything. And so he would guard himself in, in ways that I think uh, modern sensibilities might find even a little bit offensive and uh, or find at least it to be peculiar. And uh, but it wasn't because he was prudish. Again, it's because he he valued what he came to taste through the purity of heart and chastity, this capacity to love what it brought to his life of prayer, his capacity not only to love others, but to love God, and uh, that it, there was no impediment to giving himself over freely. And it also, you know, that the part of the fruit of that was this great gift of discernment uh, that, uh, again, would made him very cautious and want to guard and protect it and help those under his charge guarded and protected as well. So any thoughts or comments about that? It's a striking statement, you know, and I'm not, I'm not sure that in many modern works on spirituality, perhaps that you would hear that, that the fathers ventured to call it uh, free, uh, freedom from passion, that to obtain purity of heart, you know, is to obtain a freedom over all, all the passions. And, uh, you know, part of it is our disconnect from the spiritual tradition. You know, uh, even the one who brought this, the Eastern uh, monastic tradition to us, Cassian, you know, puts it at the forefront of his writing that our immediate goal in the spiritual life is purity of heart. This is our immediate aim. And for the reason that John just described here, that to have purity of heart is to gain, you know, certain fruits that protect us and guide us in the spiritual life. And so its value is worth anything that might need to be sacrificed or any discipline that we might have to embrace in order to, to purify our hearts. And I think sometimes when we do reduce it uh, simply, uh, you know, certainly it does include it, this, you know, sexual purity and, uh, you know, the avoidance of fornication, you know, that, that's certainly part of it. Uh, but to, to uh, limit it, our understanding it to being that, I think is really to truncate our notion of, of purity of heart to such an extent that we lose sight of the, the fullness of the spiritual tradition. How do we under, understand purity of heart and chastity uh, and its impact upon the spiritual life if we, we do not have this understanding of the human person and psychology that the fathers put before us? And, uh, you know, some of the things that John's going to say here, I think, uh, almost will seem prophetic to us in terms of what has developed, you know, this kind of insensibility to the value of purity of heart uh, and even a kind of glorying in a kind of impurity that can exist uh, and develop in a person's life. I mean, now we see that is almost the norm, uh, but uh, it's the deeper value of it that I think we need to recapture as we, uh, I think, present to a new generation the, the wisdom of the fathers. Otherwise, you know, what they are going to confront and what we confront in the culture every day is always going to be more powerful and more persistent if we limit it. If we see purity as something and, and begin to taste it 
and in the sense that it brings us into a greater intimacy with God and that it deepens our intimacy and the love that we share with others. Only when we've tasted the fruit of, of purity of heart will we long for it more and more and engage in the spiritual life in such a way that we are, are not willing to expose ourselves in such a way that we would jeopardize it. So some of the things that John will say will, I think, clarify this as we move on. Uh, Louise writes, if King David repented, why did his kingdom uh, go down so badly via his descendants? Um, because of the, the consequence of it, you know, of our, of our sin. You know, I think the, the repentance is always something that draws us back, uh, you know, into that relationship with God and intimacy with him but often we still experience the consequence of our action and of our choices. And so there was a weakening of David's kingdom and his leadership and perhaps of his own discernment that came in and through uh, this sin and the, the choices that you know, not only led up to it, but that followed it as well. Uh, number 66. No, number 67. Father David. Yes. I'm sorry to interrupt. My name is Sharon. I'm new to the group. Good. I have the book, but I don't have the paragraphs. Can you tell me what, what step of the letter we're on? Sure. We're on step 15. Oh, okay. And uh, it's we're starting paragraph 67. So we're pretty far along in the step. Which volume? What volume do you have? The um, this press? is logos. It's electronic, but I can oh, okay. the step fifteen, and and then I will um, I will be able to catch up. Thank you so okay, much. Okay, very good. The next paragraph begins with some say that those who have tasted sin. So that's what you want to be looking for. Okay, number sixty-seven. Some say that those who have tasted sin cannot be called pure. In refutation of this view, I would say, if anyone is willing, it is possible and easy to graft a good olive onto a wild olive. And if the keys of heaven had been entrusted to one who had always lived in a state of virginity, then perhaps the teaching of those who maintain what I have quoted would be right. But let them be put to shame by him who had a mother-in-law and having become pure, received the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Well, I don't know if having a mother-in-law makes it impossible to be, <laughs> to have purity of heart. Uh, poor mother-in-laws out there, they always get beat, beat up on. But uh, uh, I think you get the point of what John is saying, that you know there have been so many great saints that struggled with purity of heart and for purity of heart over many, perhaps even the course of decades. And yet by the grace of God, that, uh, that they were able to become free of this passion. And uh, I think the message here is important for us that uh, it can be a disheartening thing uh, to struggle with sensuality because it's such a part of who we are as human beings. Uh, you know, it involves a bodily appetite and something very natural for us. And, uh, and th there's a kind of constancy uh, to that reality. And uh, there's you know, a physical yearning and emotional yearning that can be a part of it. And, uh, and then even on a physiological level, our bodies respond to things in a certain way as well as our, our minds. And, uh, and so, if, especially if one has been subject to certain things within their life, uh, either early exposure uh, to, uh, you know, overly centralized situations or circumstances, or they've been abused sexu sexually, or, you know, at an early, you know, we talked about pornography as being an issue that young boys about eight years of age now are being exposed to pornography, that this, the struggle for purity of heart can be a very difficult one and require patience, trust in God and in his mercy 
uh, as well as the, this kind of discipline and the ascetic life. But the, the trust in God and his mercy is the most imp important thing uh, that one uh, in, in this struggle and the falls that can happen sometimes re repeatedly day after day even requires uh, a humility of heart and a willingness to turn back to God as often as one might fall. And, uh, and so it's, it's not, often not an easy thing uh, to believe. In fact, one might swing in the direction uh, opposite of what John is talking about here, that we might agree with that initial statement where some say, you know, if you've uh, lost your purity of heart, it can never be regained. And uh, it can feel like that. And uh, a kind of hopeless can, hopelessness can emerge uh, in the spiritual life, you know, questioning of the value or the importance of prayer and uh, or fasting or things such as that. Uh, let's see, Lawrence uh, uh, Martone wrote regarding the question on uh, David, I would highly recommend, uh, yes, uh, Pope Shenouda III. Uh, actually, I just did a retreat on this very book. Um, and it is superb. I think in terms of writers in the modern time, capturing the thought of the, the, the fathers, it's one of the most beautifully written works. So to have it as part of your library is well worth the expense, not that it's a very expensive book, uh, but so beautifully written. And uh, I think over the course of time, it will become a classic. So I'd like to spread the word about it. Uh, I think Shenouda, Pope Shenouda III was a, a very saintly figure too. And I think uh, eventually he'll be canonized someday, but uh, beautiful book, sort of highly recommend it. But he deals within the text in particular, the struggle with backsliding that we often have and the things that lead to it and how it is that we move to freeing ourselves from not only the, the sin itself, but the, the things that we are often attached to uh, that uh, make us more vulnerable to temptation. So beautifully written, but uh, has this practical element too that I think is, is, is needed for our generation. Okay, number 68. The snake of sensuality is many-faced, and those who are inexperienced in sin, he sows the thought of making one trial and then stopping. But this crafty creature incites those who have tried this uh, to fresh trial through the remembrance of their sin. Many inexperienced people feel no conflict in themselves simply because they do not know what is bad. And the experienced, because they know this abomination, suffer disquiet and struggle. But often the opposite of this also happens. So many faced, and this again is why one has to be patient in the, in the battle, but ever so vigilant, that the, the evil one can be very crafty. You know, uh, the, the memory of past sins. So one, one uh, cannot even, not necessarily be put in a situation where they are tempted, uh, but the, just the memory of a past sin and lingering in that memory can be enough to stir the passion within them. Uh, or as he says, some people experience no conflict simply again, because uh, they, they don't know that the conscience has become uh, so dulled uh, and lacking in formation in any way that there's no sense of sin there or any need for repentance. And so often there has to be something that emerges in an individual's life uh, to open them up either to the, the gravity of the sin or the beauty of, of, the, of the virtue. You know, what they see in the saintly themselves is something that attracts them to it. And uh, often, as we've talked about, in, uh, you know, it's through trial uh, in our life in one form or another that we come to a kind of clarity 
and uh, D King David was mentioned here, and certainly the trial that he bore, you know, in the recognition of his sin and what he had committed uh, also in regards to murder and the repentance that uh, emerged after that, uh, you know, led to a kind of, of wisdom in this regard and in the sense of his own weakness. And, uh, and so it is often with us, you know, that we are allowed to experience our poverty uh, to awaken within us. Uh, the, the need to be more vigilant. Number 69. When we rise from sleep in a good and peaceful mood, we are being secretly encouraged by the holy angels, especially if we went to sleep with much prayer and watching. But sometimes we rise from sleep in a bad mood, and this is a result of evil dreams and visions. Uh, again, you know, the, the fathers show themselves to be very astute in this regard, that um, we can find ourselves unsettled, even without having any recollection of a dream. And if anybody's ever had a dream that's ever so vivid, you know, where it's, it seems so real, and it doesn't necessarily have to be of a sensual nature, but it can be very unsettling and put a person off for a day, you know, perhaps it was a violent dream or something along those lines. But similarly, uh, you know, I think what John is alluding to here is that we can awaken from the night's sleep having had dreams that were of a sensual nature, and there's no sin in that, uh, but it can reveal that, you know, there is a purification of the, of the imagination, the memory, that has to take place within us, that what emerges from the unconscious in our dreams can be indicative of our need to strive for greater purity of heart, but also to deepen our prayer life. Uh, what John speaks of here of in uh, what precedes sleep as being very important, uh, of spending time in prayer and even going off to sleep while praying, say the Jesus prayer, is important to have the mind and the heart uh, be directed toward God as we are drifting off to sleep, because this is often a vulnerable time for us in terms of imagination or our passions or uh, the temptations that might come to us from the evil one. So to prepare ourselves through night prayer, Compline, examination of conscience, and then to, as we are going to sleep, to still the mind and the heart and to direct the mind and the heart toward God through the Jesus, Jesus prayer. And we've mentioned before that for some of the fathers, the prayer had so formed the heart that it would be the last thing on their lips as they're drifting off to sleep and the first thing on their lips in the morning when they awake. They, they, the first thing they uh, become conscious of, of and mindful of is this prayer, the Jesus prayer. And this is ultimately what we would desire as well, to have our minds and our hearts always directed toward God. And, uh, you know, I mentioned Philip Neary earlier, you know, this sens sensitivity to the value of this virtue that I think the more one enters into the spiritual life and begins to taste the action of God's grace and the beauty and see the beauty of virtue, the more they desire to protect it. And so, and the less they begin to take for granted times like this, you know, I think for a lot of people that time before sleep is this attempt to relax the mind but in the way that the culture has taught us, which is often through television. Like a lot of people fall asleep at night to the television being on. And so as they're drifting off to sleep, they're still in a state of receptivity, you know, and they're hearing everything uh, that is coming to them from what is on the television or the same thing through something like YouTube or whatever it might be that, uh, that they, are again in an attempt to uh, relax from the stresses of the day, uh, seek that peace of mind and the heart by es escaping 
thoughts of the day through diversion, through entertainment. And uh, always trying not to be too severe about this. And so again, for those who might be new, it's, it's worth going back to uh, Henry Nouwen was a, a great spiritual writer from like the 1980s, I would say. He died not too many years ago, uh, but uh, I read a book by him once where he describes or where he defines uh, and lays out the etymology of the word entertainment. And it means in between. It's this in between state of it's sort of like being in this virtual reality that we are drawn into this other world that is not real. We're watching something, uh, uh, say a movie, where we are drawn into what's taking place in the life of others. And, uh, and in this, it can be, become for us then an avoidance of reality and he who is reality, an avoidance of God. And, and an avoidance of the truth, perhaps of even our own dis-ease or our own pain or the, the struggles and the trials of the day, that rather than bringing those to he who is meaning, he who is reality, and finding comfort and consolation in his love and grace, we will look for something that seems more tangible to us more concrete to us and as accessible. And, uh, and it's become more and more sophisticated over time, this virtual reality, and we are, are drawn into that. And so it, it can be a very difficult thing. I think when we find ourselves, you know, struggling with despondency or when a, a day has sort of beaten us down emotionally, uh, not to want to turn either to entertainment, that in-between state, or to console, self-console through food or alcohol or any number of things. And so this counsel that John gives us here, uh, you know, that we are secretly even being encouraged by our, the angels and by our guardian angels to draw close to God in prayer. And so if we wake in the morning with peace of mind and heart, that our, our natural thought, uh, movement of thought at that point should be to attribute that to the action of God's grace, but also to the guidance and protection of, of our angels. And, uh, but I, I think in terms of praxis or our practice, you know, beginning to take take the prayer rope, the chalky, with you into bed. You know, be praying it before you get in, but to carry it with you, uh, and so that you you have that reminder, concrete reminder in hand, uh, drawing you toward prayer. And um, and you know, I think even physically, you know, a prostration or kneeling at one's bedside. Uh, you know, before God, it is, you know, this uh, certainly <clears throat> uh, manifestation of obeisance, but of placing ourselves in the presence and in the hands of God. And I've often thought about this, you know, what, what more powerful example does a child have than seeing his father or his mother at the foot of their bed kneeling in prayer? Uh, because it makes it concrete and tangible. You know, what is it so that is so important that the father, who is this strong, you know, figure within the family, uh, you know, kneeling, you know, humbling himself in this posture, uh, what is so powerful and important drawing him to that? And so that's a pretty powerful image and memory to, to create for one's uh, son or daughter. Uh, but I think for ourselves, uh, again, that involving the full self in this spiritual battle. And so as we prepare ourselves for bed to say Compline, to pray the Jesus prayer, uh, to, to make prostrations, all again to, to heighten our attentiveness and awareness of God.
Any, any thoughts or comments on any of this? I would like to add something, Father. Of course. I believe that demons have a, have a uh, preferred time for temptations and it's during the night. Mm -hmm. And one thing that has helped me besides doing the Jesus prayer is to have kind of a, a small icon corner in my room mm -hmm. with a vigil lamp on. Right. I know that some people cannot fall asleep if they have some light in their right. room, but it helps me because oftentimes when one's one get up to uh, go to the bathroom or something, the first thing that your eyes gaze upon, it's the icon. Right. And it's really a great uh, uh, defense against the demons during the night. That's right. The, the first thing that one sees is that mm -hmm. icon. And so mm -hmm. the, again, the, the, the first thing in one's mind is God yep. or one's patron saint. Uh, you know, whatever is within one's icon corner. So excellent point. And again, it's, it's making uh, things ever so concrete for us, involving the full self. And so inevitably, uh, as M Maximus says here, that, you know, we will awaken at night, you know, to, even to use the restroom. And so to be prepared for those moments uh, as moments of vulnerability, for us, when we are in this partial waking state, that we can be most vulnerable, our guard can be down. And so it is often at these times that temptations come to us. Same thing within the morning. You know, we've talked about this before the end. The father's saying, leap from your bed like a bed of coals. You know, so not hit the snooze button, you know, not to pull up the comforter, but this, as soon as one becomes conscious to leap from the bed. And uh, again, you know, to cross oneself, to say the Jesus prayer, to immediately have the first fruits of the day. And that would mean even the first thoughts of the day be directed toward God. And that becomes in, you know, that becomes the lens through which then you, you, you view your day. You know, if you begin your day with prayer, even from that first moment, uh, you're, you're viewing it through the lens of that relationship with God. And so the, sometimes the simplest things have an, the greatest impact uh, upon us in terms of engaging in the spiritual battle. I often find that, that sometimes people are, even a little put off by the, the simplicity of some of what the fathers teach, including the non-discursive prayer, uh, the, of saying the Jesus prayer, this movement, constant movement of the mind and the heart toward God, that it seems so simple, you know, and, uh, and often we are looking for things uh, that, you know, maybe don't re require that kind of vigilance or mindfulness, something that is going to bind those demons, uh, but without our having to make this effort or in enter into that relationship and deepen that love for God and to take every thought captive, you know, that we want something to do it for us. Okay, Anthony writes, uh, long ingrained habits can be at play. In New York, I remember talk radio or Frank Sinatra, et cetera, et cetera, often being in the background. It can be uncomfortable not to have something in the background. Absolutely. I think we can get so used to noise. Um, you know, people even want white noise or need white noise uh, to study or to sleep. Uh, and, or some people need to have the television on. And uh, part of this is a kind of habit of mind, uh, but also uh, there can be a kind of spiritual and psychological resistance to silence and entering into the discipline of silence. Uh, because in that you're left with the self and God and become aware of the movement of one's thoughts or what is resting heavy upon your heart. 
And, uh, and so, you know, as much as we say that we yearn for that peace of Christ and uh, of the kingdom, uh, when it comes to fostering it, we can actually avoid it because we can be fearful of what will emerge, uh, emerge from the depths. Okay, let's, let's move on a little bit here. Uh, number 70. I have seen the wicked one highly exalted and towering aloft and foaming and raging in me like the cedars of Lebanon. And I've passed by with temperance and lo, his fury was not as before. Then I humbled my thought and looked for him, but not even his place or a trace of him could be found in me. So, you know, this temperance that he speaks of, you know, in terms of sleep, food, drink, uh, all the, th the ways that we have this tendency towards excess, that the, the demons can be raging, or as he said, uh, foaming at the mouth, or how did he put that? How, raging in me like the cedars of Lebanon. So seeming like they could crush us, and yet holding on to this temperance, or because of this temperance, not being able to see a trace of them, uh, uh, in the face of that reality. And so, you know, what John is saying is that, you know, hold on to this, even though it is a fearsome battle and relentless, that something like temperance, something like fasting, or again, with one's sleep or drink, uh, even in terms of water, they mentioned, you know, that, that well, it allows for this kind of vigilance and weakens the the power of the uh, of the evil one over us, or this power to tempt us. Uh, Cindy Moran writes: the Orthodox seem to have more involved night uh, prayer in their books. Uh, it exists in the in the West as well, you know, certainly. But I think in general, you know, and certainly exists within the monasteries. I mean, we go to a Trappist monastery; they're up in the middle of the night for vigils as well but i think you know we've talked about this like two-tier view of christian spirituality there are the monks and the nuns and then those who live in the world and that we've created this false dichotomy that somehow you know we all are not called to this holiness that god has made possible for us in and through our baptism and in through the sacramental life. And even though we hear the saints over and over again saying that these writings are not simply for those in black robes, that the life that is described here, both the spiritual battle, but also the fruits of it are meant for all. The best and the beautiful are, is meant for all. And so often we don't take hold of what has been given to us, the, the, tre the treasure that has been given to us. And this includes something like night prayer. And I remember getting quite a few chuckles when I uh, read a little quote from John Chrysostom saying that parents should get their children up uh, for vigils at night, uh, even if they have them say one prayer and have them go back to bed, that it cultivates this sense of the value of breaking one's sleep and turning the mind and the heart to God. And, uh, and so, you know, burning the midnight oil, you know, isn't called into question anywhere else. Studies, uh, any other discipline that the person might be engaged in, or watching a movie or staying up for a party or whatever it might be. And, uh, you know, it's people are willing to go to these extremes uh, to have what they want. And I recently talked about in some of the Far Eastern countries that there's this psychological phenomenon that they're so resentful at having their rec time for recreation stolen from them. Their work days are so long that they get up so early and get home from work. And by the time they eat and get charred, that it's time for bed, that they will stay up in a, a, almost a passive aggressive move 
in order to hold on to what they believe is rightfully theirs, recreation, rest. And so we'll play video games until 2 a.m. and then have to turn around and get up at five in the morning uh, to get ready to go to work. And so be exhausted the next day. And so, you know, even in a distorted way, people do these, these are willing to discipline themselves to hold on to something that is a psychological phenomenon. And often when we are thinking about our relationship with God and cultivating uh, prayer when there's the deepest silence uh, and uh, humbling the mind and the body in order to allow that, we often will have nothing of it will think of it as fanaticism rather than discipline that bears a definite fruit for us. And again, you know, a person could talk about this forever and we could read about it in books, but I think it only through experience does one come to see the truth of that and the fruit of it. And, you know, certainly one would do that under counsel of a spiritual father and in moderation, but nonetheless, you know, as with any spiritual discipline, one has to enter into it to begin to experience the fruit of it and have it develop. Okay. So we are on number 71. He who has conquered his body has conquered nature. And he who has conquered nature has certainly risen above nature. And he who has done this is little, if at all, lower than the angels. So one who has been able to bring order to uh, their natural appetites and desires. And more than that, that by grace ha uh, have been elevated to such an extent that they are uh, free uh, from temptations because there's purity of heart there, that they, he says, if one can even say it at all, are little lower than angels, that, that they have come to experience the freedom and uh, the purity of the kingdom itself and uh, live like angels, even while uh, within the human body and uh, knowing its, its weakness and poverty. And uh, again, I think this is often hard to, for us to imagine because we are surrounded with so much that is the opposite of it. And, you know, and not just in terms of like sexual impurity, but this like incapacity to love the other, the agitation, the anger, the aggression, the hatred that we see within our culture, the acting out every single day uh, makes it hard for us to imagine that there could be something so radically different uh, uh, than this, the opposite of it. You know, where we see this great evil or great sinfulness, that there could be a grace that abounds so powerfully that there are those that would emerge that have this ability to love and but also have this freedom of the angels themselves. And uh, so you, you can begin to understand, uh, you know, we still have quite a ways to go here uh, in this step, but you can begin to understand why the fathers value this virtue so much and why so much attention is given to it. It's not only about avoiding sin, and we've got to move away from this view of the spiritual life. It's about embracing the grace of God and allowing it to transform us. Again, the story from the fathers, why not become fire? You know, to allow ourselves to be transformed so fully by the spirit that dwells within us, that Christ's virtue becomes our virtue, his strength becomes our strength. This is what we are called to a participation in the life of God, deification. And if we limit it to just not committing this or that sin, then you know we're, we're never going to experience the fullness of that life that God has made possible for us. 
So a lot to pray, pray for there. So we still have a little bit to go here uh, within this step. So hang, hang in there, folks. Uh, we'll, we'll get through it. No urgency, though. And, uh, but it's 8.30, so why don't we, we stop there for the evening. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.